I'm very much of the belief that our entrepreneurs are mostly interested in how they can make their paid marketing work, how they can get more out of Etsy SEO. What are the intricacies of Shopify's SEO? What's a good profit margin, right? Like those things, which they don't really know. So we're trying to think like a media company that creates content for them in their niche. You're listening to Digital Surfing and my name is Darren Smith. Our guest this week is David Hooker, who is the brand lead at Printify. David is an experienced creative director and brand manager. He has built teams at Prezi, Travelperk, Get, and many more. David is also a seasoned speaker and has published a TEDx talk on the importance of visual literacy, something which he is passionate about and we discuss in this podcast. David has lived in three continents and he's worked for the Korean government even for a while. In today's show, we talk about creating authentic content that people actually engage with, what it means for a company to think like a media company, and what goes into creating content for post-purchase. So let's welcome David to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Darren. Really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, let's get started with what are you currently involved in? I'm not sure if we'll take a screenshot, but you've got a Printify t-shirt on there. So you must be involved with Printify. But what is that all about and what is your role? Sure. I wear this t-shirt all the time, just in case people ask me. Printify is a company that's been around since 2015. And what we do is print on demand. It's very similar to drop shipping, if people have heard that. But essentially, what we do is provide a platform for anyone, anywhere, to be able to open up their own online e-commerce store and sell customized printed products. So if you could be like I am right now and sport a t-shirt with a custom design, but we actually have more than 700 unique products in our catalog. So t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, which you can easily imagine, but we also do things like stickers, water bottles, onesies, garden signs, all of these wonderful things. We add about 40 different products every month as well. And then what you can do is you sign up for free, you put your unique design onto the blank product. You can then connect that in a click with Etsy, Shopify, WooCommerce, Squarespace, any of these e-commerce sales channels that are around. You connect in a click and you can start selling instantaneously. The really great thing about it is everything is made on demand, right? Print on demand. So you don't have to pay for anything until a customer has promised you to pay for it. So what this means is, is that you can start selling with zero risk on your end. And for me, that's the particularly wonderful thing about it, because to answer the next part of your question, which is I'm a brand director at Printify and working in marketing and working in brand in particular means that I talk to a lot of our people, a lot of, uh, we call them merchants who who are using us. And we have some great stories because of the zero risk element, like especially during the pandemic, people lost their jobs, they can't go outside, they've got young kids at home. And now they had a way to make money. We had, just to give you a quick story, a girl called Cassie, who is from Wisconsin, had kids very young, got a sales job, lost the sales jobs because of the the pandemic, was stuck at home with her two young kids, needed a way to make money. She tried print on demand. She came to us at, at Printify, started designing products. And in the two years since she's done that, she's turned over more than half a million US dollars. So that's the wonderful thing about what we do. Wow, that's a, that's that's incredible. So you say that you wear that shirt every day is that i'm like do you order one on demand every day like uh, jack reacher style no i don't order one every day on demand but part of the process that everybody goes through at printify is we all open up our own stores to see what we can sell we all practice 
designing, ordering, and making. So yeah, I mean, I've always had a lot of startup t-shirts in my lifetime working in tech and SaaS and Silicon Valley and all of that stuff. But now I've got even more than I used to because <laughs> I play around and I order up t-shirts. So I was only half joking when I say I wear one of these every day. I've certainly got one for every day of the week. <laughs> I really like that kind of eat your own dog food, practice what you preach type methodology. I suppose you're in brand, you're in content, you're in marketing. And you know one of the things that I found out about you is you have your own TEDx talk. So you're literally creating content for the brand, but for yourself as well. Am I stretching that analogy too much or, or are you practicing what you preach there? No, no, not at all. The thing that I really like about what I do is creating content like and content of any kind, you know, videos, long format, white papers, a lot of presentations, which is what I did in my previous job. And that's what the TEDx talk was about. But like even things like a tweet or, a, you know, a LinkedIn post or whatever it may be like that content. I really enjoy that. And if I'm a content creator, editor, advisor, strategizer, like, you know, that's really kind of what I do. And essentially what I do is connect that content to a product that you're trying to sell, essentially. So you've got that bang on, I'd say. Okay. So hold on. So you created a TEDx talk about creating presentations. So yeah, probably if I explain, explain that a little better. The, the journey to, to doing the TEDx talk came about for the fact that I was working for a company called Prezi, which is an alternative to, to PowerPoint presentations. So as part of eating my own dog food at Prezi, I used to give a lot of presentations. I was the evangelist. It sounds super religious. Advocate marketing is what some people call it. But basically, it was my job to exhibit really high-quality Prezi presentations Often I would work with other people to do that, right? So I would work with the most famous presenters I could ever get my hands on. Can I name drop now? Like you might hear the clang as I drop them. <laughs> uh, the team and I, we worked with Bono's probably the most famous one that ever did a Prezi presentation. Neo, who was the 90s singer, best smelling man I've ever met in person. <laughs> if you're in the UK, Sandy Toxvig, who presents QI, we did one with her trying to think who else that we've done oh if you watch catfish on mtv we did one with with neve shulman from there and then we also did marketing leaders we worked with people like the clinton foundation and other people like this and then but part of my job is if i couldn't find a, a really great presenter to give a really great presentation i had to do it myself and i did a lot of grassroots presentations i went to lots of small things did toastmasters a little bit if people know what that is I mean, I went to Louisiana once to present to a conference of people who sell funeral services. I did the bottom, not that that's the bottom rung of the ladder. That was a great conference. I'd recommend it to anyone. But yeah, the TEDx was really the, the pinnacle of that journey that I went on. And my talk is about combining and really reading visuals, right? About how we as a people are really good at learning to read, like basic words on a paper, but we're not really trained to be visually literate. And as someone who was working in presentations and my job was to combine visuals with story and narrative and all of that stuff, I was and really am still very passionate about if you can combine visuals with your message, you're going to make it more powerful. I mean, that's why things like films exist, right? Mm -hmm. People love them and they're so, so effective. I then got the opportunity to give the TED Talk and the actual TED team put it on TED.com. So that was a, a super proud moment for me. And it's still still there, available. People can go and look. Yeah. What must they search to find it? 
if you go to ted.com and you type visual literacy, you'll find me. There's actually a couple of other presentations on similar topics, or you can type my name into Google, David Hooker, visual literacy, Ted, you'll find it. Yeah, be careful with typing hooker into, into Google. On your <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> like, be, be careful with that. But if you combine it with those other words, you will be just fine, I promise you. You mentioned they're going through the Toastmasters kind of thing to get more comfortable with presenting. Like, are there other tips that you have from going from like a amateur nervous speaker to being able to give a TEDx talk? Like, what are, are there anything that you'd say people should do along the way? I think it's a lot like other things that you would do. You need to practice. So mm. the first thing I would say is a lot of people have an irrational fear of public speaking, and it's really irrational. We actually looked into it when I was working at Prezi to see. And if you look at people's like top 10 list of fears, public speaking is often in the top five. In some cases, it's above death, which is completely illogical, right? Death is way worse than public speaking, way worse. I mean, I've not died yet, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. But I guess, you know, dying on stage is a big fear for people, public embarrassment. But it's really pretty much irrational. Like the worst thing that's going to happen to you is people might not quite get what you say. But if you don't go up and speak anyway, people are not going to get your message. So the first thing to do is really look at how irrational that fear is. The second thing to do is to practice it, right? If you go in there with the attitude of, I just need to get through this. If I can just get on stage, say my five things, get off again without anybody laughing at me, I'll be fine. But you won't be fine because no one will remember you if you take that approach. Yeah. So you really have to practice. You really have to work at it. You dedicate the time to it because it's a there's a high potential win. If, if people really love what you have to say, whether it's a huge stage or whether it's like just a meeting with five people in it, you're going to have a really good effect if people love what you say. Mm -hmm. So just put some time and effort into it then like there's loads of resources. Honestly, I used to teach English to kids in South Korea. So I learned the most from trying to keep the attention of 25 seven-year-old kids who didn't want to be there in a language they didn't speak. That's like the ultimate testing ground for that kind of thing. But honestly, it's just a case of practicing. Practice in the pub, practice with kids and just pay attention. Pay attention a lot. Like uh, Stand-up comedians are a really good set of people to work. Look at how they hold attention. Look at how they use narrative, let, how they let things go up and down. Comedy is a useful tool. If you look at Barack Obama's talks, he actually uses more jokes per minute than most comedians do. And it's like, they're not always hilarious belly laughing things, right? But he sprinkles them in there because it gets people on side and all of those things. There's a guy called David Nihil who writes a really great book on that, who I've stolen the Barack Obama stat from. I would really recommend his book. Okay. I'm, now you've made me super excited because I'm going to the Inbound Conference in September and Barack is the keynote speaker. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Myself, I was very nervous to get on stage. And I also remember the first talks I did was a tiny little conference in a tiny little town talking on digital marketing. But the one thing that changed things for me was beta blockers. Somebody said, take one of those and you'll completely calm down. And I took one and I found myself thoroughly enjoying it. And slowly, I've now no longer need to take. So I went down to half to a quarter. And now I'm so comfortable on stage. It was just actually getting that initial confidence up. So it, it is a medication, but it's readily available. It, it changed my public speaking personally. Yeah, I mean, find what works for you. I've never done that myself, but I can imagine it works for people who get really, really nervous for sure.
Yeah, yeah. I'm like staying on the theme of content creation. Like, what are some of the common beliefs that people have that you completely disagree with when it comes to content creation? I think the the big one that I still hear being thrown around a lot is around millennials and Gen Z's attention spans shrinking. Right? They don't care. They're all eating avocados. They don't give a crap about what you do, and they're all on TikTok, and they won't read anything. And I really don't think this is true. And the reason I don't think this is true is because I binge watch my favorite drama all the time, right? I doubt there's anyone who listening to this who hasn't really, really gotten into a series on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is that you subscribe to, and you've gone out till two a.m. because you're like, I need like Ozark was the last thing that I did it with. It was like I have to watch this now. So you can't tell me that we're consuming hours and hours of content and that our attention spans are shrinking. For me, the big difference is the battleground for your attention is way more competitive than it ever used to be, right? And that applies to digital marketing for B2B products forever. People, the other one that I would throw in there is a lot that you hear around B2B marketing is like you're marketing to a company. Like it's different, but you can't treat it like B2C. You're marketing to a company. It's like, yeah, but who works inside the company? I'm pretty sure it's people. Right, and you're marketing to three people instead of one, and you're marketing to a process rather than a split-second decision, which are different things, but it's still like human emotions that you're tapping into. So I think the two ways to look at it is like you're always marketing to people, you're always marketing of a base of emotional and practical value, always, and you just have to be wary of the fact that there is something else vying for that person's attention. So just deliver your most important or your funniest or your most eye-catching or your most inspirational thing first. Get it in there early, grab people's, and if you grab someone's attention, they'll stay with you for eight hours if you've got really great content. And good news is in B2B digital marketing, you don't need to have their attention for eight hours, right? You know, 30 seconds and you win usually. So to engage these audiences, what do you mean by getting in first? Is that like, be the first Facebook post of the day or what do you mean? I mean, within the content that you create, the thing that's valuable to the user up front, like in the first line, in the first five seconds, like within your tweet, whatever it may be. So it's the thing that I see often is that you get so caught up in your new feature or your new thing. And you're like, you start messaging, we've got this amazing new feature and no one cares what your feature is called. Everybody cares about what your feature can do for them right? It reduces your waiting time. It increases your bottom line. It improves your relationship with blah, blah, blah. That's the thing that people care about. Like they don't care that you released, I know, Darren Express 3.0. Like they don't know what that is, right? They care about what Darren Express 3.0 does for them. It's going to deliver you better results on your paid marketing campaign. Oh, hello. I want this thing that he just told me about. So that's what I mean. Like the value to the person who's consuming your content or who you want to consume your content, get it in early, like super early, first line. Mm-hmm. You spoke about Gen Z and that type of thing and like platforms, I suppose, that they're consuming content on is completely different to what generations before and so on consume content. I'm like, as soon as there's a new TikTok or a new Snapchat or a new something, I'm like, brands flock to it. Is that the right strategy just to flock there? Or is it something more that needs to go into it? It's the right decision to flock there if that's where your target audience is, right? If your product is, I'm going to stereotype a little bit here, but if you're selling a product aimed at CFOs or accounting professionals, and you've worked out that your typical persona is like 48-year-old accountants, they're not on TikTok, 
right? So don't spend a penny on TikTok. But if you're selling a new fashion line aimed at Gen Z, they're there, right? And you should pay less attention to your LinkedIn presence because they ain't there. And they're certainly not shopping for clothes while they're there. So the, the answer to that is flock to the channel where your people are. Doesn't matter really anything more than that. And then I suppose combined with your message of lead with something that's a value to them. Because I mean, I still see daily on Instagram, as an example, people saying, happy boss's day or whatever. Like they've paid somebody to go and produce an image or piece of content that I don't see it adding any value at all. The, the only time when that can work is if you're in a super competitive market, right? And you've got kind of product parity with your competitor, what you do, what they offer, there's no real difference. Price points more or less the same. They might fluctuate here and there. Then you're getting into a place with brand where you have to go make them like you, right? They're with us because they like us. So if your post is then around something that applies to the niche that you're in. So like if we go back to accountants, right? And, And we're trying to market to them. If we do a post on Instagram or probably more likely LinkedIn, but let's say we do a post about LinkedIn and we relate to a common problem that accountants have. I don't know. Off the top of my head, I don't know what problems accountants have, but I'm guessing like that idiot in marketing overcharged his credit card again, right? (laughs) Just posting that as a LinkedIn message, like perhaps from someone who's an influential person in the accounting world, that would have merit because other accountants will look at that and go, okay, I'm not going to buy your product right now based off of that. But I do like you. You empathize with me. You meet me on my level, as it were. When I do come to choose my accounting software, I'll most likely remember that hilarious LinkedIn post that you, that you read. So it can be important at times. Yeah. Okay. So there's something that I keep on hearing people say that in particular tech companies, but companies as a whole need to become media companies. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that before? Yeah, it's a thing that I think Gary Vee was perhaps the first person to say this. Dave Gerhardt, who was the CMO of Drift, is also a big proponent of that. And I certainly agree. I think to qualify what you said a little bit, to think like a media company and to act like one in your niche, right? So for example, what we're doing at Printify right now. So I spoke earlier about how we allow entrepreneurs or like bedroom entrepreneurs is what I call them, even though some of them are working from their garages, but right, like, you know, they're home-based micro entrepreneurs. We're trying to create as much content as we can for them in their niche. So we have TikTok channel, we have YouTube, we have Instagram, which is where we believe these people are, and we're creating content for them. We honestly, a while ago, created a lot of content that was really based around the products that we had, right? So it was like, look at our new mug, right? But actually, I'm very much of the belief that our entrepreneurs are mostly interested in how they can make their paid marketing work, how they can get more out of Etsy SEO. What are the intricacies of Shopify's SEO? What's a good profit margin, right? Like those things, which they don't really know. So we're trying to think like a media company that creates content for them in their niche, right Mm. in there and to create as much stuff as we possibly can so i am a subscriber to that theory like with that little qualifier of you know don't start making content about political issues that mean nothing we're never going to make something about brexit right unless our entrepreneurs tell us that you know that they have really big concerns about it and it affects what they do Okay, no, fair enough. One of the other companies that you look up to in terms of marketing is MailChimp. 
what is it that they are doing or the person behind the scenes is doing? Well, I, I should imagine by now they've got a really big team. For, for me, like I always look at MailChimp stuff and always think, oh, it makes sense. That totally makes sense. Go look at their homepage. They know who buys their stuff, right? Who pays for their platform. And they know these people, they know their problems, they know their pain points, and they market to those, right? Like every word that they have crafted on it. By the way, the MailChimp releases every year their style guide for like how to write for them. It's oh, it's one of the best resources on the planet. Like everybody should have it. Everybody who's into copywriting should have it bookmarked because that's like how a style guide should look. But essentially what they do is, is they, you can tell from their marketing that they really, really know what value they present to who. And then they just talk about that all day, every day, all week, makes a decision really simple and easy. You would think it would be obvious. I'm kind of glad it's not on some levels because I'd be out of a job if it was as obvious as I think it was. <laughs> Okay, so before we um, start recording today, we're speaking about books. And one of your favorite books, Delivering Happiness, is one of my favorite books. And while we're on the theme of content, Delivering Happiness is all about customer experience after they've made a purchase. So, you know, there's plenty of stuff around content production, acting like a media company to attract potential customers. How much do you spend on creating experiences, content, and so on for post-purchase? Uh, honest question is that is not enough. It's something that we need we need to do and we need to get better at. Is you know, that's the kind of the only honest answer I have for that. And I think Tony's book is a really good one to look up to. And for me, it's because it, it comes from such a genuine place. When you read the book, you feel like he's not calculating right he's not i've identified the pain point of these people and it is here and they prefer that like it feels like we did this because we thought it'd be nice and it turns out people like it so we do more of it right mm. i always found him to be someone with such a relatively small ego like straight up to the point honest but also relatively ego free for the tech world i'm sure you know a lot of people especially kind of senior leadership they tend to have quite large egos and he didn't so like I, that's one of the reasons i really love that book and like do you buy into that philosophy of deliver amazing customer experiences that will result in a viral impact people talking about you that will result in more customers as opposed to trying to create something funny that it becomes viral and people share, but you actually do it through customer experience or what's your opinion on that? No, I, I think exactly that, the first thing you said, right? Create a, a viral a customer experience that people love. It, like It's like I said earlier, make people love you, right? If people love you, then they'll choose you over someone with a product parity. However, also trying to do funny things that go viral, that's do that too. <laughs> don't ever think that you can guarantee success doing that. Right. Like there's lots of people who are like, if you do this and this and this, it will go viral. It might not. In fact, it probably won't. But like still have a crack at it, have a go at it because it might well do. So mm. I, I don't think it's a, a binary decision. I think you can do both. But I think the customer experience thing, you absolutely must do. So how many times have you had things that, go, that have gone viral? Ooh, More like, than a handful? <laughs> no, definitely not. I'd say the success rate is really low, like <laughs> really, really low right? You put something out and you see if people like it or they don't like it. And 
I think also when you say the word viral, people are thinking a video that blows up and gets seen by millions of people, which is great and all, but like what you're really looking for is virality within your niche, right? So if you've got a piece that every accountant is reading, that's really kind of the virality you want. Yeah, sure. Well, we've absolutely blown through 30 minutes really, really quickly, um, which I can't believe. So I always end off with a question that is, if you were to go back to your career now and do something differently, what would that be? I think that for especially a long time in my late 20s, not going to reveal how old I am, but it was a while ago, that I was very caught up with this concept of work-life balance, right? Mm -hmm. If I spend more time at home, I'll be better at this. And if I spend more time, like, and oh, which one? The, and then I know someone close to me told me once, stop thinking of it like that. Think of it as like, do you think of it as work-life balance? Just the word balance indicates that you have to sacrifice one thing for the other. And, and she actually said to me, think of it like a flow. If you're doing well at work and you're happy at work and you're fulfilled at work, you're probably going to come home and be happy and fulfilled and whatever. And similarly, if you're feeling happy and fulfilled and like, so be good at both, right? It's not a decision whether to be like good at work or good at life or, okay, I'll be good at life this week, but I won't be so good at work, right? And maybe they won't notice. Just be really good at both and yeah. be aware of the fact that sometimes you have to invest a bit more on one and sometimes you have to invest a little bit more on the other, but it doesn't mean that you're sacrificing anything. Yeah, I see so many people fall into that trap as an employer, you know, people that you know, honestly believe that they need to completely switch off at five o'clock every day. Otherwise, there isn't the balance. And then you get the others that you can see are working all weekend. And you, but it's not like the people that are working all weekend are less happy about it. Absolutely see, see that playing out all the time. Yeah, totally. I think I tell my 29 year old self is be good at both. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, David. It's been awesome having you on Digital Surfing today. Real pleasure to find out more. And we'll put some links and so on to your TEDx talk and so on in the show notes. But yeah, it was great meeting you. Wonderful, Darren. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking to you today. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.